Father, every time I walk up to this pulpit, I'm so grateful for two things. One, that you are speaking, God. And two, that your Holy Spirit excels at taking my words and quickening them to the hearts of those who hear. Lord, I pray today that you would address us with authority and clarity and power through your inerrant word. And I pray as we hear you speak to us, King, that our hearts would be humble and obedient and responsive and not stubborn and dismissive or bored. Speak to us and help us change. We want to be more like you because of what we've heard. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. At the outset of this sermon, I want to make an uh, observation that if you have a daughter whom you have given away in marriage, is old news to you, but it would be this. Uh, weddings are very expensive. Very expensive. How many of you have given away or seen your daughter married? Yeah. Yeah, very, very expensive. I have three boys and I am cheering on the inside right now. <laughs> I've, I've led quite a few wedding ceremonies over the years, and every time I am shocked by the cost incurred by the bride, the groom, their families, and hosting even a simple celebration. But not every celebration is simple. A few years ago, Business Insider ran a story, some of you may have seen this, on the 12 most expensive weddings in history. Okay, so if you have not given your daughter away in marriage, get ready to be overwhelmed. All right, after adjusting for inflation, the most expensive wedding on record is Prince Charles and Lady Diana in 1981 with a total bill of $110 million. The second most expensive was Venetia Mittal, and Amit Bhatia, their wedding was $66 million in 2005. The bride was the daughter of billionaire steel magnate Lakshmi Mittal, and the wedding, quote, featured invitations mailed in silver boxes, including plane tickets and rooms at a five-star Paris hotel, five days of festivities at a 16th century chateau, and Versailles, and a temporary wooden castle. Not to mention complimentary Mouton Rothschild, which is a really good wine, and designer gift bags filled with jewels. And just imagine you're walking out of the ceremony, and here's a gift bag full of jewels. All right, here's the third most expensive wedding. The third most expensive wedding was Prince William and Kate Middleton in 2011, with a bill of $34 million. $32 million for security, 
I don't think any of us are that important, by the way. <laughs> 11000 for a wedding ring. $600,000 for the reception. $434,000 for the gown. $80,000 for the wedding cake. I think that's like 150, 200 bucks a slice. 800,000 in flowers and $64,000 for cleanup. Can you imagine being part of a royal wedding like that? So the dads are thinking, I don't want to imagine paying for a wedding like that. Well, well, Psalm 45 is about a wedding, a royal wedding. And the description of this wedding, friends, surpasses the glory of every ceremony I've mentioned thus far. Because this wedding, the glory of this wedding, can't be calculated in dollars and cents. Because its glory doesn't come from the venue, the food, the flowers, or the gifts, the favors. Okay, the glory of this wedding comes from the character of the groom, the character of the bride, and the price that he paid to get her. And at first glance, this wedding, Psalm 45, seems utterly removed from our modern experience. I've been married almost 10 years, and I read this, and I think, you know, I don't remember ivory palaces showing up in my wedding. But folks, this story is not a fairy tale. It's a true story. And the closer that you look, the closer we look, I think the more we'll see that their story can be your story. Okay, so let's consider first, as we look at this wedding song, the character of the groom. Okay, this is point one. The groom is glorious. Groom is glorious. So Psalm 45 is unusual in that the author, the sons of Korah, actually tells us who he wrote this psalm for. Okay, that doesn't always happen, but look at verse 1. He says, My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. So the king's name is not mentioned, but we know that it's one of the kings in the line of David, king of Israel. Because this was a psalm used in Jerusalem, the capital city of of Israel. And in the next seven verses, one of these sons of Korah gives a description of the king, the groom, that makes him the ideal man. And if you're a parent of a daughter who is not married, trust me, this is the kind of guy that you want knocking on your door. This is the kind of guy. Okay, so what makes this groom glorious? Well, first, this groom, this king, is established by God. Established by God. Look at verse 2. The psalmist says that he is physically attractive and endowed or given wisdom, which he concludes are ready evidence of God's blessing. And not just a a one-time blessing as if it would fade with, with wrinkling skin or a fading memory. This man has received an enduring blessing. 
and eternal blessing. God has, the psalmist says, blessed you forever. Okay, so think about that. This, this man is not a king because he made himself a king. This man is a king because God made him a king. His reign is a reflection of the sovereign will and authoritative blessing of God. And since God made him a king, it's only proper that the psalmist would tell him to live like one. Okay, God has made you a king. Now be a king. Fulfill the role that God has called you and enabled you to fulfill by his power. So, so what's the role? What is this king established by God supposed to do? Look at verse 3. Gird your sword upon your thigh, O mighty one. Now, guys, I don't know if, if any of you have ever had a buddy come up to you um, and say, Hey, man, gird your sword on your thigh. I've never experienced that. You know, and if one of you does that to me after the meeting is where I'm going to think like, are you talking to sword? We, we don't talk like that normally to one another, unless you're maybe at a costume party or something. But, but in this day and time, for one of the sons of Korah to say to a king in the line of David, gird your sword upon your thigh, was to say two things. Two things. One, king, God has given you authority. You've got something called a sword. That's not just sharp. It is sharp. But it's a symbol of authority. God has given you authority. And now you need to use it. So to say, gird your sword upon your thighs away for the psalmist to tell this king, you've got authority, use it. Wear your sword. Use your sword. Exercise your authority. And verse 4 says, how? How is he to exercise his authority? Look at that verse. In your majesty, king, ride out victoriously for the cause of three things. Truth and meekness and righteousness. Okay, so now the psalmist is telling us that this, this groom is glorious, this king is glorious, not just because he's established by God, he's blessed by God, he's set up by God, but this king, this groom, is righteous in judgment. He's established by God. He's righteous in judgment. Notice, friend, what this king is fighting to uphold and defend. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. Okay, I want you to focus on that first word, truth. Okay, we live in an age where truth is nothing more than what you think versus what I think. And what we think is nothing more than a product of the cultural environments in which we live. That means truth is ever and always relative and subjective. That is not what the Bible teaches. It's not. Okay? The Bible teaches, the Bible tells us that truth is absolute and objective because it exists apart from us and outside of us. And the psalmist, notice, doesn't exhort the king to ride out victoriously in search of truth. 
or to write out victoriously for what he believes is true, or to write out victoriously because there is no truth and life is just a power play with survival of the fittest, so conquer something. No. He says, write out victoriously for the cause of truth. Okay, a cause that exists apart from the king, outside of the king, and by which the king's actions are ultimately going to be judged. So what does that, what does that mean, church? How does that apply today? Well, here's what it means for you and me. God has not given you the prerogative of determining what is true. He's not given you that. You can try to do that. You can try to determine on your own, what is true. But if you do that, you've chosen a path of arrogance where you are the ultimate authority. You are the ultimate arbiter. To the contrary, God says, God demands that we must submit to what he says is true. If you do that, then you've exchanged the path of arrogance for the path of meekness honestly assessing yourself and the people around you in light of God's revealed word. Because apart from God establishing what is true and not true, there is no basis or no such thing as righteousness or wickedness. And apart from God establishing what is true and not true, there is no way for you to evaluate whether an action is good or bad. But because God has established what is true and told us what is true, there is such a thing as righteousness and wickedness. Those are real. We can know what they are. And one of the characteristics of the groom in, in verse 5 is that he uses his authority to protect the righteous, and destroy the wicked. So don't buy into this, this postmodern notion that somehow judgment, evaluating the rightness or wrongness of things, the truth or the falsehood of things, is something to be avoided, as, as if that's always arrogant. It's not. Okay, when you evaluate in light of God's word, what is true or what is not true, what is righteous or what is wicked, and you make a judgment about that in light of God's word, you are imitating the character of God. You are not being arrogant. And if you are told in response to that that you're self-righteous, well, then they need to answer to him. Hey, we, we, even as Christians, we, we hear Bible verses like, don't judge. Or we just kind of go soft and squishy. Okay. Jesus loves you. <laughs> you too. Oh, did I judge you? Sorry. No. No. Be humble. Be humble. But this king is commended in God's word for judging rightly. You do the same. Do the same. In verse 6, the psalmist moves from praising this human king to praising God. Look at what he says. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
Okay, so he was talking about the groom, this human king. Now he directs his attention to God, the divine king. And he notes that every kingdom in this world, without exception, is defined by certain characteristics. So if you're part of the kingdom of Isis or Isil, okay, that kingdom is defined by ruthlessness. Okay, if you're part of the kingdom of Switzerland, I think that kingdom is known for its neutrality. So what would you say if asked is the defining characteristic of the kingdom of God? What does it say? What does it say? Your scepter is a scepter of uprightness. The defining characteristic of the kingdom of God is righteousness. Uprightness. In other words, God's actions always correspond to what is good and right because God loves what is good and hates what is evil. And and we need to recognize something here, but one of the things the Bible says about us as those who bear God's image is that our actions reveal our affections. Okay, track with me here. We, We don't ultimately choose in our minds what we know is right. Okay, we choose, we live based on what we love, what we perceive to be good, what we see as delightful and satisfying. So, for example, I can know in my mind that I'm supposed to serve my wife. But if this afternoon I sit on the couch and watch six hours of football and leave her to handle all three of the kids, then then what am I saying? Am I saying that I, oh, you know what? I just forgot that I'm supposed to love my wife. No, I didn't just forget the right action. My action said something about what I love. Namely, that I love football more than my wife. Yeah. Because our actions always reveal our affections. And God's no different. He, he loves righteousness. He loves whatever accords with his perfect character. He hates wickedness, whatever is opposed to his perfect character. And because he loves what is good and hates what is evil, the exercise of his authority is always characterized by justice and uprightness. And in verse 7 the psalmist turns back to describing the human king, observing that because like God, he loves what God loves and hates what God hates, that God has done something for this man. So look look what he says, verse 7. God, your God, speaking to the king, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. He said, what does that mean? It means that this this king, this glorious groom, isn't just glorious because he's established by God and righteous in judgment. He's glorious because he's overflowing with joy. He's overflowing with joy. The oil of gladness beyond your companions. There's a critical lesson for us here. Because I think so often it feels like doing life God's way is all about Denial and suffering. Denial and suffering. Never get to do life my way. Always have to do life God's way. 
God, I love being a Christian. I mean, if you don't say that, do you think that? You know, the following Jesus can appear to be this, this miserable existence. And everybody out there is having a great Friends, do you realize that the notion that if you decide to follow Jesus, all you are signing up for is suffering, is a lie from the pit of hell. Intended to keep you from doing what you were made to do. Satan is very deliberate in sowing those thoughts in the minds of God's kids. Because here's what's true. You know what happens when you learn to love righteousness and hate wickedness? You become full of joy. Full of joy. And I'm not talking about a a meager joy or a moderate joy or, or just some sort of inward spiritual joy, okay? This, this is an overflowing, beyond-your-companions kind of joy that's experienced in every dimension of life. So, so notice these, these sensory images in verses 8 and 9. They, they cover the spectrum. Fragrant robes, ivory palaces, stringed instruments, daughters of kings, gold of Ophir. It's, it's enduring. Okay, it's extraordinary. It's, it's comprehensive. Th- those pictures are meant to tell you that's how great the joy is that God lavishes on those who love what is righteous and hate what is wicked. And it means that joy doesn't come from those who follow their hearts. Sorry to ruin any cards you received recently if you graduated from something. Follow your heart. <laughs> no, no. Joy comes to those who embrace God's heart. There's a difference. Who cry out to God's spirit to, to shape our affections so that, so that our actions are increasingly governed by God's word. That's, that's the way this works. You allow, you cry out for God's spirit to increasingly shape your affections to resemble his affections so that increasingly your actions are governed by his word. That's his heart for us. That's his command to us. It means being a Christian isn't just the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. Because God delights to lavish joy on those who love what he loves and hate what he hates. And that's why the human king in this psalm, this glorious groom, is overflowing with joy. He's established by God, he's righteous in judgment, and he's overflowing with joy. But before we turn to look at the bride, okay, there's one more thing we need to recognize about this groom. Makes him glorious. Okay, in Psalm 45, I told you this several times, a human king is in view. And the portrait, to quote Derek Kidner, could be discounted as conventional flattery were it not for the one king of whom similar things can soberly be said. 
that he is chiefest among 10,000. That no one ever spoke like this man. That he is meek and lowly, yet rides forth conquering and to conquer, and that he is called faithful and true. Because, friends, this picture of this glorious groom in Psalm 45 isn't ultimately a picture of a human alone. It's a picture of a God-man, of Jesus. Okay, Hebrews 1. Josh read part of this earlier today. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Verse 7, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, look at this, your throne, O God, look familiar, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Okay, so a minute ago, I said that Psalm 45 verse 6 referred to the human king, whereas Psalm 45, Psalm 45 6 refers to the divine king, Whereas Psalm 45, 7 refers to this human king in the line of David. Okay, so what does Hebrews 1 tell us? It says that ultimately, it's the same person. It's the same person. Jesus is fully God. He's the one whose throne is forever and ever. And Jesus is fully man, the one whom the Father anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions because Jesus always loved righteousness and always hated wickedness. Okay, which means that the first reference to God in verse 7 is ultimately God the Father. And the second reference to God in verse 7 is ultimately God the Son. And what this verse makes crystal clear is that God the Son is no less divine than God the Father, which makes Psalm 45, 6, and 7 one of the strongest proofs in the entire Old Testament of the deity of Christ. He's God, the Son, and the Father is God. It's a picture of the Incarnation. And it means that the glorious groom's name is Jesus. Because there's no limit to his authority. He's established by God. He's righteous in judgment. And he's overflowing with joy. Everything that was said about the human king's glory is infinitely more true of Christ. Now, look at the bride. Look at the bride. Verse 10. Look at this bride. If the groom is glorious, here's what the bride is in one word. The bride is beautiful. Bride is beautiful. And there are at least three reasons why that's the case. Okay, so look at verse 10. The psalmist says, Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Okay, you know what that tells us? That tells us that the wedding in here 
isn't one of these arranged marriages where, you know, he's 12 and she's 10 and mom and dad kind of, you know, have some drinks, get together and say, you guys one day are going to love one another, right? Say it with me. You're going to love one another. No, no, that's not, that's not what's going on here. It's not an arranged marriage. Okay, this woman, this, this soon-to-be queen, she's precious in the eyes of the king. She's precious. And not because of what she represents or, or who she will become, but because of who she is in his eyes. She's beautiful. She's desirable. He longs to be with her. She's loved by the king. But that's not all. Look at verse 13. She's clothed in splendor. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she has led to the king. What does that mean? Well, it means that this bride isn't just loved by the groom. It means that because he loves her, he has lavished his glory upon her. Okay, his actions are an expression of his affections. And because he desires her beauty, he's clothed her in a robe in which she is fit to draw near to his presence. And as she's on the way to him, as she's being led from where she dwells to where the groom dwells, a third thing is true. She's full of joy. She's full of joy. She's loved by the king. She's clothed in splendor. She's full of joy. She, notice what he says, verse 15, with joy and gladness they're led along. Where was the last place joy and gladness showed up in this song? It was the joy of the groom. In other words, what is characteristic of the groom has become characteristic of the bride as she is led on her pilgrimage to him. The joy that crowns his life has become the joy that crowns her life even though she has yet to see his face or enter his palace. Imagine what it would be like to be part of that wedding. Imagine what it would be like to be sought after by a king like that. The object of his affection, clothed in splendor and and full of joy. Friends, here's the entire point of this sermon point. Her story can be your story. That's the point. This bride's story can be your story. Because speaking of marriage, the Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. 
Okay, that means that the groom in Psalm 45 ultimately points to Jesus. And so to the bride in Psalm 45 ultimately points to the church. And that's not a surprise because centuries before Jesus showed up, the Lord began describing his relationship to his people as that of a husband to his wife. Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Friends, Jesus Christ loves you passionately. He loves you passionately. So much so that he would leave the glory of heaven to come and win you for himself. He made you in his image. And though your sin has separated you from the one to whom you were betrothed, he has not stopped loving you. Not stopped. He set his affection on you. And even now he stands longing as a, as a groom waiting for his bride. I've, I've stood up in front of this very room with so many grooms waiting for the bride. They're looking. They're waiting. They're longing. It's the object of their affection. You can see it in their eyes. I get the best seat. That's what Jesus is doing for you right now. He is longing, desiring to draw you to himself. He's not just your Lord. He's your husband. He knows your sin. He knows your failures. He knows you don't deserve to be loved by a king like him. He knows that you, if accept, you accept his proposal, are going to be married way out of your class. <laughs> That's an understatement. <laughs> but you know what? He loves you anyway. And he purchased your forgiveness at the cost of his own blood so that those arrows that he's prepared for the hearts of his enemies in verse 5 would never find their mark in you. All he requires of you is what the psalmist told the daughter of Jerusalem to do in verse 10. Look at that. Hear, O daughter, and consider... And incline your ear. Think about all you now know about your groom. Here's what you need to do. Forget your people and your father's house. Do you know what that's called? Repentance. (laughs) Repentance. That's a picture of an exchange of loyalty, just like a bride will exchange her loyalty to her father or to her family for loyalty to her husband. So following Jesus means that we exchange our loyalty to the world, to our, our will, our preferences, our desires, and we let go of that and we invest our loyalty, our devotion in King Jesus. We, we, we turn, we repent. I love it how, how Martin Luther said the first of his 95 theses that launched the Protestant Reformation. He said this, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, 
He intended that the entire life of believers should be repentant. That turn I just described, friends, that is a turn we are meant to live in, almost like a merry-go-round, so that day after day, moment by moment, we are constantly turning away, withdrawing loyalty from the things of this world, our desires, our preferences, and turning and investing that loyalty in King Jesus. Your whole life. You should do that, by the way, because it's the right thing to do. Verse 11 says, since he is your Lord, you must bow to him. But what I want you to see today is that he's not just your Lord. He's the king who desires your beauty. Which means that the pleasure that you found in following the ways of this world is going to pale in comparison to the pleasure of being loved by him and known by him and treasured by him. You can't compare it. It's off the charts. You are obligated to submit to him as your Lord, but you get to submit to him as your husband. And church, friend, Jesus calls you today as a groom to his bride. Come to me, follow me, submit to me. You are loved by the king. I will clothe you in a splendid robe of my righteousness and I will fill you with overflowing joy. The point of Psalm 45 is that God's joy becomes your joy when you freely submit to God's authority. That's the point. So I have one question for you. Simple message. One question. Where do you need to repent? Where do you need to submit to King Jesus? Okay, I'm, not, I'm not talking about trying harder. I'm not talking about you know, the moment in this service where, all right, I get a little teary-eyed and I'm going to rededicate my life to Christ. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm, I'm talking about coming to God with empty hands and saying, God, I need you to change my heart. My actions follow my affections. So I need you to change my heart. I need you to change what I love. Because unless you change my heart, I can't love you like you want me to love you. I see you waiting for me, longing for me, desiring me. But you're going to have to intervene because I can't change this. And you know what? You cry out to him to do that, he'll do it. He'll change your heart. But you have to be honest. You have to repent. You can't negotiate. You have to surrender. Because we're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. Friends, the groom is glorious. The bride is beautiful. And her story can be your story. His joy can become your joy if you will gladly submit to his authority through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, it is amazing to be loved by you. 
it is amazing that you would seek after us as a groom for his bride. And I pray today that you would grant us the grace of repentance. Lord, you know we live in a culture that, that despises submission. It calls it weakness. Father, you know that there are some in this room who have undoubtedly submitted themselves to one person or another and were horribly hurt as a result. So Jesus, I thank you that when we submit ourselves to you, you promise to do nothing but pure good to us. That it is safe to submit to you. It is good to submit to you. It is right and joyful to submit to you. And I pray right now that wherever we are not doing that, wherever we are taking parts of our life and saying, God, no touch, that's mine, that you would help us repent. Help us repent. We want to submit. Help us submit. Every area, all the time, all for you. Amen.